Hello, welcome to The Do Podcasts with me, Gav Thompson. We are the new podcast series from The Do Lectures. So what are The Do Lectures? In short, it is an ideas sharing event set up in Wales in 2007 by David and Claire Hyatt with a simple brief to inspire and encourage people. Since those early days, The Do has grown to have had over 150 million views of their lectures online and has been nominated as one of the best ideas festivals in the world by both The Guardian and The Sunday Times and Seth Godin. And it has still run out of a chicken shed in Cardigan Bay, Wales. Season one of The Do podcasts is all about the story behind the person and the person behind the story. So what is my story? Briefly, I worked for 13 years in advertising agencies in London, New York and Sydney, during which time I was fortunate enough to work with David Hyatt. And I've since had a reasonably successful 13-year career working in marketing, initially for O2, and since then I've been the CMO for Paddy Power, Yopa and Bowden. My proudest career moment was being the founder of the rather fantastic mobile phone network, GifGaf. More details of the rest of my story can be seen in my own Do Lecture from 2012. This year, like many people, I found myself unemployed, so David, Claire and I hatched a plan that rather than getting negative during COVID, I would do something positive, which is this, the Do Lectures podcast. Series 1, Episode 2, Uncommon Conviction with Johnny Bowden. So welcome to the Do Podcast with me, Gav Thompson. Today we are talking to Johnny Bowden about Uncommon Conviction. Johnny is the godfather of catalogues. He set up Bowden in 1991. He's been incredibly successful since then, which we'll hear about in a minute. Bowden is currently the third largest British fashion brand in the US. It has uh, clothed a generation of both women and children across the UK and Europe and the rest of the world. It's fair to say Johnny is a retail women's wear and children's wear guru. He's often listed as one of our most successful and wealthiest British entrepreneurs. And he's also my old boss until we consciously uncoupled, parted company about nine months ago. But we are still great friends, which is why he has very kindly agreed to be on my podcast today. So uh, welcome to the Do Podcast, Johnny. Thank Brown. you very much, Gav. Very flattering. I don't feel I deserve many of those labels, but thank you anyway. It's a pleasure. So look, Johnny, by way of intro, you and I have quite similar backgrounds, actually. I went to Wellington and then Cambridge, and my dad was a colonel in the army. And you went to Eton and then Oxford, and your dad was a colonel in the army. Yeah. And that's obviously where our paths diverged. Tell me uh, what you did well and where that went right and what I did wrong. The first thing I want to say, Gav, is I always worry about my success, such as it is. And to describe me as being very successful slightly unnerves me because at the moment we're having a very, very difficult time and the British high street is littered with corpses, people who were once considered successful and then died a horrible death quite quickly. But difficult question. I think I was quite scarred is perhaps too strong a word, but my father was very demanding and my mother was scared of him, so she basically did what he said. And whatever I did was never quite good enough. And I was not brave enough to confront him. And when I left university, I did a job that I he approved of, namely working in the city. But I was very, very bad at it. And I should have actually said to him at the time, 
I don't want to do this and I want to do something else, but I wasn't brave enough. And I think the only thing that I've been able to do differently from other people maybe is I've been quite good at confronting my own weaknesses. And I do think self-awareness is very painful, but it's very important. And when I realised I was rubbish at something, I changed. I have a very strong and wonderful wife who's very good at telling me uh, I'm rubbish at quite a few things, like chopping up onions, uh, <laughs> like coping with last-minute changes, all sorts of things. And my family are too pretty vociferous. But I, because I was slightly beaten up, and, and I don't mean that in any way, I don't expect any sympathy, but because I had this rather quite punishing parent uh, relationship, it meant that I was quite sensitive to feedback. And I've tried quite hard to listen to it. And I do think that, I say to my children, we all make mistakes all the time and you just have to learn from them. So tell us about the... You often say you were in the city, you made a complete balls up of it. Just give us a tiny bit more flavour of that. I think, I mean, the more important point was that I didn't enjoy it. You know, I, I remember some guy, very nice chap, we got frightfully overexcited because he said he'd sold... 10,000 ICI shares. ICI is a business that probably nobody's heard of now, but it was a big industrial and paint company, and Dulux, et cetera. It was the biggest, I think it was the biggest company in the UK when I was a stockbroker. And he, this chap got really excited and he'd sold this great wadge of shares. And he said, oh my God, it's amazing. It's better than sex. And I said, no, it isn't. You know, it really isn't, actually. Uh, and I couldn't get excited about the act of churning money around. Now, I don't want to belittle the city, by the way, because I think the city is an incredibly important part of our economy. And there's some incredibly talented people working there. And it's our, our kind of biggest export, pretty much. So I'm not going to get into knocking the city. It just wasn't for me. I had a creative gene that the city was not fulfilling. And as a result, I couldn't enjoy it. And, and also, as a result, I wasn't very good at it. But with hindsight, do you think you should have challenged your father earlier on about you, when you were at school you were very into clothes I you know I yeah. think you worked did some work for some of the fashion magazines Harmony you were Queen, taking yeah, pictures yeah. of lots of your friend's mum's yeah. shoes is that right that's or just right, your friend's yes. mum's do you sort of was, was there only wasted years where yes you- definitely I mean I, I, I you know I, I don't want to moan but I think one of my biggest regrets as you say was that I didn't confront my father I didn't confront the fact that I was screwing up at this job early enough and in fact, it was only because I got went to America where I became really, really unhappy. And I got this unexpected inheritance that I was able to confront the issue. But goodness knows what would have happened if I hadn't got that money and I hadn't been brave enough. I would probably have had a nervous collapse because I really was no good. But definitely, if I was starting again, I, know I would say to anybody who bothers to ask me, the most important thing is to do a job that you're, that you really, really enjoy and that you're quite good at. I couldn't tick either of those boxes, and therefore it was a big mistake. I didn't learn much. I le- all I learnt was the pain of doing something you didn't enjoy, and I suppose that might have been perhaps that was an important lesson that has put me, you know, enabled me to say the things I'm now saying. And mm. but there was a lot of I drinking too much. I had sort of unsatisfactory personal relationships. You know, 
I was had bad acne. You know, I was I was there were lots of things that were pretty. Uh, but was your dad sort of proud of you? I mean, you know, he was an amazing man in many ways, my father. But his own father had been killed in the first war. He never had a father, so he didn't really know how to be a father. You know, he liked being able to tell his friends that I had a good job in the city. I think secretly he might have been quite proud of me, but he never showed it and never said anything positive, really. So you're in New York, your uncle died, you inherited some money. And yeah. tell us again the thought process of, right, I've suddenly got some money. How did that then lead to you setting up Bowdoin? A very good question. So it wasn't as quick as I would like you to think it was. I had this terrible fear of never being able to set up my own business. I couldn't be an entrepreneur. I didn't have the right skills. You know, I didn't know many people had set up a business. I didn't seem very daunting. So what I did was I spoke to a lot of people and quickly realised that actually you didn't have to be a superman to set up your own business. You know, I, I could do it. And once I'd made the decision, I never looked back. There were a couple of other factors one was I'd always wanted to be... Another thing I was interested in was teaching, and I got a job as a teacher, but that didn't last long because the money was so terrible, and I'm a greedy bastard, and I just... <laughs> you know, I, I remember spending my sort of monthly salary check in about, you know, four days. Um, and then secondly, I always wanted to run a pub, and I, and I ran a pub, but that wasn't for me either because I was very bad at dealing with alcoholics, and I also... <laughs> had a terrible thing I got, because I couldn't drink any alcohol in the pub, I used to drink lots of Coca-Cola and I forgot to brush my teeth. I had terrible teeth problems, <laughs> really weird. <laughs> but I didn't, they weren't quite my thing. And, and the last and most important thing is I met Sophie, who is now my wife, and I was going out with her and she famously said, and she did say this, about six months in, you are a failure. You know, you've had this incredible start in life and you're wasting it. I said, well, fair point. But I have got this idea of, of, of a clothing business. And she said, well, don't do it. I'm going to leave you. And I really fancied her and loved her. And I thought that was quite a strong incentive. And it was the truth as well. That's a great incentive to start yes. a business, right? Yeah. But again, so you're, you've had this sort of interest in design and fashion, but you're not a trained artist or a trained no. designer. Yeah. So again, was there some cynicism amongst your friends or family going... Okay, oh, yes. I mean, I mean, do I, I, I don't bring out the violins, but I mean, I don't think one person said to me, what a great idea, you're going to be a huge success. I mean, I promise you, there were a few people who believed in me, above all my wife, and, you know, one or two people, but the vast majority, and particularly my parents, just thought the whole thing was utterly ridiculous. And, you know, it was fairly ridiculous when you think about it. But in those, but the funny thing is, I, I think knowing you now as I do, was you started in menswear, right? Yes. Whereas I think your special, your X factor, if you like, is your ability to make women look and feel great, which we'll come on to in a minute. Yeah. What was the thinking about why you're going to start in menswear rather than women's? Oh, because I didn't know anything about women's wear. I was interested in men's clothes. I found a really great tailor in the East End, uh, Mr. Half, he was called. And I really like buying slightly kind of unusual fabric. And I'd go to Berwick Street Market or all sorts of places and would find some rather wacky fabric and get it made into suits that cost us 70 quid or something. I loved that. And I was quite obsessed with I mean, really sort of weird things. I remember, you know, I've got quite Big thighs, not as big as yours, but quite big. Steady on. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I never got found a pair of trousers that were cut quite right, and they were either too sort of John Travolta with about th- a thousand pleats on either side, 
or they were sort of rather, you know, repressed, hackett, English, uh, very tight. And I thought it was really important to get this trouser shape right, which in my view was an inward-facing single pleat on either side with quite a narrow bottom. And, you know, menswear, it's all about details. It's all about having pockets that are just the right made of... And in those days, you couldn't get... Very hard to get pockets that, had, that were cotton. They were all revolting nylon or shirts that had didn't have very thick interlining in the collars there were all sorts of things that were ripe for you know and I thought well if I feel like this there are going to be others who feel the same and we started in menswear but the problem with menswear is that it's a much smaller market than women's wear and the other problem with our clothes was that the quality was so good people just didn't need any more and there was a limit to how many pairs of chinos or corduroy trousers or whatever it was we were selling because they were they would literally last 10 years so there's not that inbuilt business that women's wear women you know are much more into fashion and they need to have things that look new so there's they spend more on clothes basically okay so you launched the menswear business at what point did you then move into women's wear and then at what point did it start being successful well two questions we actually went into women's wear this is a if I may blow my own trumpet, you know, because of my relatively good self-awareness and ability to listen, I was listening to the customers and the customers were saying, we want women's wear, men's, we weren't making any money. So we launched women's wear, in fact, about six months in, and then it became the bigger part of the business within about four years, I suspect. The thing that was took me by surprise was how long it took to make any money. So we we were really bumping along the bottom for about 10 years, actually. And we were constantly, I had to, uh, you know, I had to give my house to the bank. I had to raise more money consistently until about 2002, I think. It was, in fact, it was the year my, mo- my mother died in 2003. And we, it was just then that I, you know, we, we could start having nice holidays and stuff. It was very, it took a long time to make any money. And did your, when did your dad? My father died in 2000. So he, he never saw you being no, successful? No, no. And that, is, that must be some source of, source of regret for you? Not really, because if I'm honest, you know, even if I had been, he would have been a little bit... He wasn't the sort of person to show much emotion. You know, if you fought in a war, and your father's been killed in the war, and a lot of your friends have been killed, you've lost lots of money, which my dad did, you know, it sort of does plays havoc with your emotional well-being, really. So he was never, ever going to, you know, he never cuddled me. He would never, and actually, I, you know, to be honest, I'm not going to be cross with him because that was just, the, he was a product of his background and his own personal life. Actually, I don't lie awake thinking about it and being sad about it. So my analysis of your life, Johnny, is you've met two people who have effectively changed your life. Wow. One is Sophie. Yes. The other is Julian. Very good, yeah. I thought we were going to say you. For <laughs> <laughs> well, you can put me right on this. Julian Granville, who was your CEO and then lastly chairman and still very involved in the business. Yeah. Tell us about Julian's involvement, because I, I do think he he makes you a much more complete, better a better person. person. Yeah. So one of the things that, one of the many mistakes I made was, was choosing bad people. I'm a notoriously bad interviewer because I, uh, I don't have much patience. So I went through a period of hiring some you know, people who weren't that great. And then Julian came along, and Julian was an interesting case because he didn't have necessarily the right qualifications, but he, 
He was obviously intelligent. The two critical things were number one, I totally trusted him. I you know, I knew I knew his family, I knew his brother. Our grandfathers were exact contemporaries in the same house at Eton, really weird. And all sorts of other things as well. And so I, I kind of knew the sort of chap he was and so I trusted him, but also he had totally the opposite skill set to me. So he was very measured. I was, you know, a bit volatile. He's very numbers driven. I'm quite visual. All those sorts of things. He's very calm. I'm not. And actually, one of the things I've learnt is in a team, you do, I mean, it's a pretty obvious thing to say, but you need a real complement of skills and you can't, it's fatal to have people who are the same as you. And he was very different to me. But we had this underlying trust. I think you might enjoy the story of his interview, which was when things were pretty tough for us. I used to answer the telephone all day to customers. And then in the evening, I would do all the paperwork for the business and I would place the orders and I would also check in the parcels. And I was working, you know, 16 hour days. And Julian came in for an interview. I said, well, can you, I'll meet you at eight o'clock in the evening. And I said, do you know what, actually, I'm absolutely knackered. I haven't taken any exercise for about a month. I really want to go to the gym. I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to leave you. There's a delivery of 36 cartons of men's shorts in the warehouse. I want you to check all of them. And here is some paperwork and you should be able to do it in... When I come back, we'll finish it off. It was a bit of a test. And by the when I got back and he'd done it pretty well and we then went out to have a Thai curry and that was it. I mean, 90% of people, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. Oh, well, who's this weird bloke asked me to do? I'm not doing that. So it was just a test of his whether we would get on because that's life in a small business. You do have no personal life and you don't see your friends and, you know, you, you have to do funny things at funny times of the day. So that reminds me of my interview with you, um, where we did all the normal stuff, I met everyone else, and then the final stage, where I presume I was down to the shortlist of one, involved two things. It involved drinking wine with you, i.e. getting me quite pissed, and then the real curveball was you left me alone with the sofa, your wife, for half an hour for the the wife test, which again, I obviously passed, but is the getting drunk with someone quite important? I do think that... Hiring people is largely about empathy and you know chemistry, and people are spectacularly good at putting up a front uh, in a formal interview. Anybody can create an amazing portfolio. Anybody can come across in an authoritative way. They executives are always ask the same questions. You know, what are your greatest weaknesses? Oh, you know, and off they go. But actually, seeing somebody in an informal environment is more revealing. And the Sophie test. Yes, I wanted reassurance that I'd chosen a nice person and and you passed the test, Gav. So look, the theme of today is Uncommon Conviction. I'm interested to know where Julian and the rest of your team, in those early days, where were they getting their conviction from? Because obviously it comes from the leader, it comes from your vision. How were you managing to get them as convicted, if you like, as you were? I'm a terrible manager. I gave that zero thought all I was really trying to do was to inspire them. And I wasn't doing it very consciously. I think the fact they were working for somebody who was really committed and had some quite good ideas was must have been, I think, quite a motivational thing. 
And also in a small office, you know, it's quite easy to create quite a fun buzz. You know, there are a lot more jokes and everybody can hear everything. And I tended to hire people who had a sense, good sense of humour. And I was interviewing everybody myself. So it was the strong culture was, I think, quite warm, was quite appealing to people. I was always keen to thank people. You know, if anybody did a good job, for all my many faults, I'd always say thank you. Thanks. Have a lovely day. You know, have a lovely evening. Actually connecting with people, look them in the eye. And I worry now that in a bigger company, that's harder. I think those sorts of skill, that sort of behaviour is now almost frowned upon because there's so many pitfalls about chatting to people. Yeah, It's a nightmare, actually. And I'm often told, you know, you, you, you have your favourites and oh, it's all horrible, really. So I don't enjoy that part of business life these days very much. I mean, the thing that, that is remarkable about you, Johnny, and this is not me blowing smoke up your ass because that isn't, as you know, how we roll, is that you work bloody hard. You're yeah. often the first person to start working in the, yeah. in the day, the last yeah. person to finish. And I think a lot of people at your stage in life could be going, you know, I'm going to take my gas off, foot off the gas yeah, and go yeah. and swing around on a yacht. I'm going to come in for the odd lunch. Yeah. Just tell me a bit about that work ethic, because I think um, that is quite uncommon. That's a very, uh, I mean, there are all sorts of explanations. I've got it from my parents, who were very, very committed, arguably not necessarily to the right things. But, you know, I was never allowed a lie-in at home. I never, and I never wanted one, actually, to be honest. I'm quite a light sleeper. I'm you know, very happy with six hours. I've got a natural energy. I sometimes collapse in a heap a couple of times a year. I, I do sort of have a bit of a collapse, but on the whole, I've got a natural energy. The second thing, and much more importantly probably, is that I enjoy it. I think there are days I don't enjoy it, but I think that's true of any jobs, and I've, I haven't found anything else I would rather do. I've looked at people who have given up their jobs and gone part-time, and I don't often think, ooh, they're happier, that's a better way of doing things. I look at them and think, oh, they're drinking a bit much, they're spending too much money, they've got all this extra time. I mean, my wife will kill me for saying it, but I genuinely, whatever you think about his politics, or, you know, Rupert Murdoch is still hard at it, almost 90, and he's still adding massive value. The guy is still really on top of his game, but I think on the whole, carrying on working for as long as you can is a better way of living. I do not want to be swanning around a golf course or becoming a local councillor and throwing my weight around or really, really no thanks. It's just not my thing. You know, to most people, you have this amazing life, frankly. You've built this amazing business. You've got yeah, a great yeah, reputation. Yeah. You've made a shitload of money. Yeah, yeah. You've got a beautiful wife. You've got lovely kids. You've got... So it's not even just the material stuff. You've got it all. You've got your health. You're still... You, you're still a, touch wood. You've got it all, Johnny. But you often come across to people that are, know you and work with you as yeah. being pretty grumpy. Yeah, yeah. And, and actually not very content. Not, not yeah, very yeah, it's a fair. It's a fair comment. And I apologise to you and to my family because it is true. I think it is something that's very hard to explain, but I, I do feel... I could do so much better. That's the problem. I, you know, that's it, and it's that's the drive. That's the key to my character, which I can't really unlock. But I just constantly think. So, for example, I watched a, a HBO a program about Ralph Lauren the other day, and you know the material things don't really grab me. But you know he's got he is billionaire several times over. He's got this massive business, and I think crikey. 
I could be as big as him, really, if I, if I really... And when we do things that don't work, it makes me really frustrated because I think, oh, I, I just... I suppose I just don't like failing, you know, and I think it's never good enough. It isn't that I'm thinking I want more money, you know. It's more, you know, you mm. see some images in the catalogue that you're not very happy with or you see some clothes that aren't quite right and you hear customers complaining about product or members of staff sounding off against you or the business it kind of hurts and you think oh crikey I'll just try and do it better and it's actually the the wanting to do it better that's really rewarding and I find it it's that sort of failing and wanting to learn from it and get better that helps you grow as a person. And I appreciate that. And I think you know, most entrepreneurs have a bit of this. In yeah, them. yeah. I sometimes wish you would be more content. Yes, it's a fair point. You know, it's been a difficult few years. The transition from a catalogue to a web-based business, we've had a few issues with our top team. And there are things that haven't gone terribly well in the last few years. Funnily enough, this is the other thing that I always would never have believed if you told me 30 years ago you always imagined as you got bigger that things would become easier and in fact they don't the problems just change and I've made a few mistakes about hiring people etc that have made me quite um I'm not including you in I was say, no but there have been, been quite a few and I don't want to go into too much detail but but you know there are things where I think that the, the lack of content, I realise I've made a mistake and I don't quite know how to solve it. But funnily enough, for all the hideous impact of COVID, I do think one of the few benefits has meant that the navel-gazing has become better. And I think there are some things that I am sort of, I feel a little bit more confident about and I think I will make me a bit jollier. So... The thing that you are amazing at, as I mentioned, is this kind of to be a tastemaker or a, a kind of style arbiter for a certain type of customer. And we all know, I think, who those, that customer is. That is such an X factor for someone that isn't a trained designer or, you know, wasn't trained by another yeah. designer. And I've seen you do it. You can walk into a room, there's literally 30 dresses on the wall, and you can go, that one, that one, that one, that one, that one. You don't always get it right, but you, you're, pretty, yeah, you're pretty good uh, yeah. at it. Where does that skill, because it is a skill, and that's actually what, frankly, drives your value in the business, where do you think that comes from? How have you worked at it? I think it's a number of things. I think I was born with it. It was never developed, and it was always slightly frowned upon. I think, you know, people do have a, a genetic predisposition to certain things. I mean, really strange story. My, my maternal grandfather was a rotter and I never saw him or met him, although he died when I was 16. And it transpired that he married several times after my grandmother and he had another child who I'd recently met who was a designer. You know, and, I, and, so, and my father was creative. You know, he had it kicked out of him by the army, effectively. So there, there was some creativity in my genes. The second thing is... I've always been a visual person. Some people, I've always been, I've always noticed beauty in some shape or form. I, it means a lot to me. It really drives me. If I see, you know, Sophie, my wife, bought a really hideous ironing cover about a year ago and I got really, <laughs> hysteric, <offend> you. <laughs> really upset and I tried to change it and she then got really upset that I was fiddling around with her, 
her area of, of expertise. <laughs> so it's a, an innate thing. And then two other things. Number one is you, you listen to your customers, uh, you look at your competitors, and you sort of, and you're aware of the trends. You know, you pick things up either actively or subliminally. But the other thing is you hire great people, you know, and actually hiring really good creative people is more important than my own eye. If I can find the right people who have the right instinct, you know, that is really, really critical key for our future success. Was there a moment where you thought this is more successful than perhaps I ever thought dreamed we could be? There were two events, actually, which have stuck in my mind. Number one, in the early years, as I said, I used to answer the telephone to customers all the time. And I and I also had, surprisingly, some lovely friends who would place what I call sympathy orders. So in the morning, I would answer the telephone to customers. And then in the afternoon, at 1.30, I would go and check all the parcels in the warehouse. I was checking for two things. Number one, I'd look at the invoice, make sure that all the items in the box were the same as the items on the collate. In those days, you didn't have barcodes, so there was no... You'd always find some what's called picking errors. And the other thing was to, you know, even more simple, to make sure that the name on the box was the same as the name on the parcel, because sometimes people got sent the wrong things. And there was one day when I noticed I didn't recognise any names. And until then, there was always somebody who I remember speaking to myself or was a friend or an acquaintance. I remember one day, and it must have been 200 orders, there wasn't a friend, there wasn't any name I recognised. I thought, this is now, this, this is a proper business now, it's not, not just a hobby. That was one thing. And the other one I remember also quite vividly was when we launched in America, and we go to customers' houses in America, and I heard people, and they didn't know I was there, and they were talking about the brand in such a positive enthusiastic way and I thought crikey there are a lot of women like that in America that we need to find and that was quite a big thing jokily the other one was when we discovered that an American customer had called their child Bowden really <laughs> it's Christian name that's uh, that either either <laughs> quite flattering or quite tragic and when was the time when it was most challenged when was the moment you thought I'm not sure this is going to pan out the demand was always there it was more coping with the stress of running a small business. I was defrauded by somebody who was really, really nasty piece of work, who organised a burglary. And as a result of this burglary, I had to put my house on the line and I had to sell lots of shares in the business. Really unpleasant. I think it's been those sorts of moments where you do slightly think, crikey, this is pretty hard work. You know, when, when you have to deal with, you know, I've been sued... And those things are pretty punishing because your whole character has been called into question. That's painful. But I've never actually thought, oh, this is a shit idea. I've always thought I'm getting it wrong a lot. But as long as you get it right 51% of the time, you can survive. The business is worth a lot of money. It may have been worth a bit more a year or two ago because of where we yeah. are. But have you ever sort of thought of just selling a third of it, half of it, kind of banking that? And then just sort of um, things you're, you're... It's a very good question and one that my you know, accountant would probably recommend. But I have this rather simplistic mantra, which is you're, you're either in or you're out. And I just feel if I sell the shares, what sort of message is that giving to everybody else? I genuinely think that it has the opportunity to be bigger. 
I genuinely think that therefore the shares are quite good value and actually I don't really want a sort of bucket load of cash. I've done well out of it and I get a nice dividend and I get a decent salary but I, I don't I'm not yearning for huge other things it is risky it is risky my children giving them too much money would be very spoiling for them so it is something that perhaps I should have done at the moment as you say the shares are probably worth half what they were a year ago because of the wretched covid uh, uh, good question. You can probably tell the fact I'm, I'm stuttering is the fact that you're probably right and I've made a mistake. So one of my observations of you, I think you should have your own sort of makeover show. You know, like, yeah, yeah. like um, you know, the Queer Eye or Trini and Susanna or Gok Wan. I think the world is ready for the Johnny Bowden makeover show where you go into someone's life and you help improve their life through clothes, whether it's family, whether it's someone that's had a life-changing experience or they've put on loads of weight or lost loads of weight or they're going back to work. Lots of scenarios. And I think you'd be really good on camera. I think you'd be really funny. I think you'd be really entertaining. I think the world would love a Johnny Bowden makeover show. A, would you do it? And if not, why not? And if yes, when? I've always been very nervous about television and certain journalists because of my privileged background, so many of the questions that journalists would ask would be about that privilege. And I found it so frustrating because it was just so irrelevant. And, you know, I've got caught up in knots with this issue. And, of course, I did some unbelievably stupid things when I was, you know, a teenager, which will become very prominent. You know, I'm an easy target for that sort of toff bashing it upsets me and, and it annoys me. That's one issue. The other issue is that I'm not actually a stylist. You know, they're stylists, those guys. Yeah. But, you know, I'm not Trini Zan. I've got a team of stylists. I don't do it. My, I know what looks but right. it's the magic of TV, Johnny. You wouldn't actually be doing it, but yeah. you'd be well, it. Well, I mean, to be honest, I think the things that I'm more articulate about, and I can obviously have a strong opinion on that, but I'm the things I'm more articulate about are the business side of things, although I'm not a finance guy, the thing I love doing is when people come to me with an idea is, is talking them through it. And the problem is that most entrepreneurs don't listen. So I do this advice and they, nobody gives a blind spot of notice. So I mean, if you can think of a concept that would play to my strengths, I'm very open to Good. it. Good. Well, I'm looking for something to do, Johnny, outside the yeah, podcasting. Yeah. So okay. we'll watch the space. Yeah. You mentioned toff bashing there. You have another real skill. Yeah. You have many skills, Johnny, but another one I've observed yeah. is your ability to kind of walk into a room yeah. and be funny, engaging, witty. You're most of the time you'll kind of get through a situation by self deprecating yeah, humor. Yeah, yeah. The other person that I've observed yeah, doing that, yeah. you know, close up, because I've got to know him a little bit, was Boris Johnson. Yeah, is Boris yeah. Johnson. That's his shtick. I've yeah, seen yeah, him do yeah. it. You stand with him, he's in a bit of a fluster. He suddenly walks into the room and he just. His charisma falls out the room. He's very jokey and he's very engaging. He's very smart. Given your similar backgrounds and given, I think, you obviously know him, yeah. how do you feel about the Boris Johnson comparison? I don't know Boris that well, but I do know him a little bit. It's a very good observation because I'm four years older than him and I remember him when he first came to Eton and you don't often notice junior boys. It's a big school, 1,200 boys, and this chap appeared and, of course, he was very distinctive looking because of that funny mop of hair. But also, exactly as you say, wherever he walked, 
he was surrounded by people laughing. He was very funny. He, he was a raconteur. And for all its faults, Eton's quite democratic, actually. And there were, there'd be, after supper, you'd have what's called societies. And you would go out, because of its cachet, you'd always, you know, fantastic speakers would come down, politicians, trade union leaders, footballers, whatever. And you'd, there'd all be society. And whenever Boris was at one of these societies, and I'd often be at the same meeting as he was, he would stand up, people would start clapping, because they, they knew he was going to be funny. Oh, Boris, what are you going to say now? I think that... Everything you say, I think there is a difference, though, in that I am more of a businessman than he is. I think he's a fundamentally a journalist and a politician, and they are. That is a different thing to being a businessman, where you have to get things done. You have a team that are more. You know, he's a basically he's on his own. He he hasn't had to do the team playing that I've had to learn to do. And I think that comes that's a good, back. No, that is a good answer. I, I think, think it's interesting fair. when you, when you, you know, politicians and journalists, they're always thinking, oh, how will this seem? How will this appear? How will this play out? How can I get up the greasy pole? And they're sort of conniving, you know, how do I shaft my colleagues? Whereas in my job, you know, I've got customers. I mean, he's got, he's got slightly different customers, but I've, I'm thinking all the time, I'm not going to be interviewed. You know, this is the first interview I've done in six months. You know, he's yeah. interviewed every five minutes. Yeah. I'm not having to think about that. I'm thinking about how do we make this product really, really good for our customers. And being a politician is must be a nightmare because you're under the microscope all the time. And sometimes you, you shouldn't be under the microscope. You need to be left alone. And I feel sorry for the guy in many ways, and it's his choice, it for any politician. Choice. But, you know, you, now, when you look at the great political characters of, of our in our history you know i mean churchill drank far too much didn't pay his debts lloyd george seven illegitimate children and boris has got a few but you know the, the scale of the scale of the the magnifying glasses so and it makes for a poorer world actually the level of, of press interest in public figures so you just led me on to my penultimate question actually joining which is this sort of duality of you which is i just kind of it's interesting and again i don't i think people should hear about it which is you have this slightly contrarian, contrasting character where you really, really care about your customers. So you famously, and any burden customer listening to this will know, will bend over backwards to address any issue that a customer has to the point where I used to run your customer service function. Certain customers, we'd be losing money on them because we were just sending them new stuff all the time and literally going way beyond what most people would do to keep the customers happy. So that gives us real indication that you frankly care a lot but then that's matched with this other thing i think is amazing about you is you sort of don't really care about to some extent what you know the pc brigade the woke brigade what they kind of think of you you're very i've seen you get quite cross before by some stuff that's come out in the press about things we may or may not have done as a brand and i'm just that contrast of really caring about customers but not really caring what I'm going to call them the sort of woke PC generation, think of you. Yeah. Just give me that, what's that contrast all about? I think, you know, I'd like to think I'm a decent person. We source our clothes very ethically. We have a very pretty diverse group of people working for us. We, we photograph black models, you know, really early on. You know, you could never accuse us of being racist or any of those things. I get quite upset because I feel... One of the the problems of the woke brigade is it's all what I call virtue signaling. It's all look at me, look at me. But actually, they're not interested in 
as much doing the right thing as being seen to do the right thing. And those are very different things. So, uh, you know, I can give you tons of... My children are, are very... They point these things out all the time. Then I point out to them, so, you know, the sort of obsession with green issues. You know, I want to save the environment as much as anybody. But then the hypocrisy of, of the younger generation who use so much more data and, and energy than we do. Yeah. How much energy does downloading a TikTok or a WhatsApp do? And they, if you point it out to them, they go bananas. And I think on the other woke things, I'm too honest to be able to cope with inconsistency. And I think that there's a lot of dishonesty in some of that ranting and raving. And that's what I get cross about. Okay. And the customer obsession about customer joy? Ultimately, you have to treat your customers like your friends. And if we start ignoring that, then we're toast. I think there are some customers who have exploited us, our, our generosity, but they're actually not that many. And we sometimes call them up and say, there are certain quite famous public figures who have bought 30 Bowdoin dresses and then started their own business on the back of it. And that makes me cross. But actually, it's better to be a bit Christian about it and turn the other cheek on the whole. Because the problem is if you start being arsy with customers, then you think they're being taken the piss. And actually, there's some quite genuine ones who are sending stuff back to, you know, they've got funny body shapes or we've got it wrong. Johnny, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. You've been very honest and open as ever and demonstrated your uncommon <laughs> conviction. So thank you very much, Johnny. Thank you, Gav. Um, all the very best. And shout if you can come up with a nice television idea for me. You'll be hearing from me. Okay. Thanks, Johnny. Thanks, Gav. You've been listening to The Do Podcast with me, Gav Thompson. Thank you for your time. I hope you've enjoyed it. Please do review us and subscribe or email me with any comments, gav at dolectures.com. The next episode will be along shortly. This podcast was produced by George McDonough with music by James Morton. Music.